When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Vass here with this week's How To Academy podcasts, the show for and about people who think big. If you're homebound and listening in for the first time, then welcome. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. Our live events programme is on hold until the pandemic abates and we all head back outdoors. But this podcast will be here to keep you intellectually stimulated until then. As the streets of the world's cities empty and social life moves into cyberspace, you could be forgiven for thinking that you were trapped inside a dystopian science fiction novel. Perhaps even the dystopian science fiction novels of the man who coined the word cyberspace way back in 1982, William Gibson. He was ahead of the curve then, and in his new novel Agency, set in a 22nd century London decimated by pandemics and other disasters, he's shown that he is ahead of the curve still. In early February, I interviewed him to find out how he creates such prescient and powerful visions of the future. Since then, the world depicted in agency has only grown more acutely believable and relevant. Enjoy the interview. And be warned, small spoilers for the novel await. William Gibson, you've been in the news here in Britain quite a lot recently, not only because Agency, your new novel, is set partially in a parallel universe where Brexit never happened, and also in a bleak 22nd century London where it did, but because one of the architects of Brexit, Dominic Cummings, wrote in a job advert for his Downing Street team... I quote, We need some true wildcards, weirdos from William Gibson novels, like that girl hired by Big End as a brand diviner who feels sick at the sight of Tommy Hilfiger, or that Chinese-Cuban freerunner from a crime family hired by the KGB. Can you tell our listeners, many of whom might not be familiar with the novels that Cummings is referring to here, what on earth he is talking about? and what your reaction was to discover your strange new influence over the politics of this country. Well, the, quote, girl he, he mentioned is, is Case Pollard, the protagonist of, of my novel, Pattern Recognition. And I think it's, it's very significant that he remembers, remembers the name Big End, her very problematic employer, but doesn't remember her name. So my immediate assumption was that he would like to be able to think of himself as as Big End, but I don't think Big End would hire him. Big End would attempt to, to con some competition of his into hiring, into hiring him. The, other the other character is in I suppose is in Spook Country. 
and would be an extremely un unlikely choice for a British bureaucrat, even, even one intended to be entirely disruptive. It's not the first time people have taken your fiction and actively attempted to make the real world more like it. And the most famous example, going back all the way to the beginning of your career in the mid-80s, of course, is cyberspace, a world that you coined to describe a vision of a fully networked virtual reality world long before the internet existed. But since then, you've continued to imagine things that become part of the real world. Not always because you've predicted them, but because the people who make them sometimes deliberately come up with them based on your novels and make the line between reality and fiction a little blurry. So there's at least one real-life advertising agency uh, inspired by Big End's advertising agency. The jacket worn by Case Pollard didn't exist in the real world until you wrote the novel Pattern Recognition, but now, thanks to you, it does. And I'm going to go as far as to say that, with all credit due to Steve Jobs and Johnny Ivey, it's not entirely ridiculous to say the vogue for minimalism and normcore in fashion and design is partly your fault. So I'd like to know, how has your ability to, deliberately or otherwise, help create the present influence your approach to imagining the future? Do you feel afraid when you come up with something really horrible or dangerous in case someone runs with it, or self-censor uh, to avoid writing self-fulfilling prophecies? Well, I do occasionally self-censor to avoid giving anyone ideas. But usually those are things like, like uh, particular terrorist stratagems that would be <laughs> highly, highly cost-effective. And I've caught a couple of those in, you know, going over the proofs and thought, no, I, I wouldn't want anyone to, to go there. But otherwise, uh, I don't... Uh, self-censor I don't self-censor very much and I think I'm I'm uh, I actually um, in my opinion I'm less of an influencer that way if you will than it's convenient for journalists say to to present me as is there an alternative where you hope something you might come up with will be adopted? Well, there may be, but I, I can't think of I can't think of one offhand. One of the great pleasures of any of your novels is the way you engage with the material world. Not only how you convey the surface appearance of things, but how you excavate the forces that brought them into being and the subcultures who make their own uses for them. It's impossible to read one of your novels without feeling like you've learned something about how and why our material world is, it is, it is as it is. And what attracts you to this very unique way of understanding the world? Where does it come from? I think I've had that since early childhood. And it may actually have been the result of, of having a, a particularly isolated childhood so that r rather than uh, learning things about how the world worked from people I was meeting I, I learned things about the way the world worked from objects I, I encountered and I learned that every manufactured thing has been made by someone 
that there's usually, you know, that that's usually interesting for me to learn about. Uh, I've learned that people use things for all sorts of purposes that the, the particular thing was not designed for, which, which is all also, also interesting. Like no one, the people who invented the telephone pager didn't anticipate it changing the criminal geography of American cities or bringing about the wholesale removal of public phone booths in certain neighborhoods. And part of the science fiction writer's job, I guess, is to imagine what those unexpected uses for things are going to be. Yes, I, I think so. It hasn't traditionally been part of a science fiction writer's job, though. Uh, my recollection of my, my childhood reading of, reading of science fiction was it was very unusual to read about a, a particular kind of technology, whether real or imaginary, being repurposed by the street, as it were. How do you cultivate your knowledge of the material world? I don't research anything. I, I mean, originally I, I just walked around looking at things and asking people questions about them. It was just something I did anyway. But some part of me, I suppose, was always collecting the, the bits I found interesting for some future use. Originally, probably just as, you know, conversation pieces. But once I began to write fiction, it became the, the hopper into which uh, potential pieces of fiction would, would go. Let's talk a bit more about that and your approach to building imaginative futures and the techniques you use to make them feel lived in and convincing, or inversely, to make the present day feel strange and futuristic and unfamiliar. Um, what else is in your toolkit that creates that uniquely Gibsonian flavour to the futures and present day scenarios that you come up with that might not be part of the approach of a more run-of-the-mill futurist who's just extrapolating from existing trends? Well, I, I began to try to write science fiction just as I was beginning to complete a, a four-year bachelor's degree in English literature. And rather late in life, I was in my, my late 20s, when, when, I was, when I was doing that. And I had a, a collection of... of mental post-it notes for writing fiction, things that, and they were things that I felt the science fiction of the uh, early 80s, that I wasn't seeing as much of it as I would have expected to see based on my, my reading, uh, early reading of, of science fiction of the mid-60s, which had generally seemed like, you know, fairly hip. But by the 80s, I, you know, looking at science fiction, I, I felt like someone who had grown up on, on country blues 
going back to hear it again and getting Nashville country instead. <laughs> uh, so uh, these the post-it notes were, were an attempt to keep me from going going there. And one was that it simply needed more basic, you know, that you know keep the basic literary naturalism turned up high. And another was that um, there needed to be a, a believable economics to the story. You know, characters either either had to have jobs or they were trying to obtain jobs. They they weren't just sort of there in in a silver silver spacesuit. They're often dilettantes or criminals. Yeah, they're often dilettantes or criminals. But another was that the future is always made primarily out of the past. And this is something that American science fiction writing had had actively tried to avoid all, all my life, it seems. And that was really the most radical thing about Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, for instance, was that it depicted a future made of the past, like built of the past. It doesn't seem like a radical concept to Europeans, but to Americans, it's still kind of alien. It may be because we had always had that, uh, you know, if you find the future by moving west and building a completely new city from, from the ground up, a city that has no past, so I didn't want to do that. I, I wanted to have uh, futures with, that were filled with old things and obsolete technologies and people who were too poor to afford anything but obsolete technologies in, in some cases. And uh, all of those, following all of those directives uh, eventually led to whatever it is that I do to construct uh, an imaginary future that at least convinces me to whatever extent I, I need it to in order to tell the story. Do you ever have ideas that are too advanced for people in the present day to be able to understand? Is there a sort of buffer to what science fiction can do where you have a concept that is so many leaps away from our existing technology, oh. that you just can't write it and have to pair it back? No, not, not really, but I don't think of myself generally as, as being someone who, who comes up with very novel ideas. Because most, most of my ideas are found objects, and I find them, and I, and I then often as not collage them with another found object and it, it creates what well, you know what I can at least hope is a novel new object or or concept but I don't really think of myself as being conceptually inventive the most recent exception to that though I would say is the idea of the jackpot in the peripheral which is a a multi-causal, extremely long-term apocalypse, which, as far as I know, is not something 
that we've we've ever had actually had in human culture before an, an apocalypse is always you know the day of judgment or you know the the night of whatever it's it's not the uh two and a half centuries of of you know slow decay i was going to ask from the first months of 2020 it does seem like the jackpot is beginning Got the bushfires in Australia, Jakarta underwater, the coronavirus. Yes, it, it does. So you, wrote, you wrote that book five years ago. Yeah, no, <laughs> Here it, it is. It it does, but the uh, the my you know my theoretic my theoretical jackpot is a very long term event, and most of these things we're we're seeing, I, I think are the result of long-term causes. So there's, there's nothing at all new about the emergence of, of the coronavirus from whichever, whichever part of China it emerged from. And it's all, all too familiar to a- anyone who is living in Vancouver during the SARS pandemic. Where we got, you know, we got SARS very quickly because there's so much constant back and forth with, with Hong Kong. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. How worried are you that the jackpot is really the likely course of world history for the next hundred years? And how much are you, for want of a better word, just entertaining us? Well, percentage-wise, it's difficult to... uh to break down. I mean, I do take the the concept quite seriously. And as you say, uh, this year particularly, it, it looks as though we're, we're well into it. But it, it, it's, if we are, it's, been, it's something that's been going on for at least a century before this. And it's all, all the result, well, I think... Trump and Brexit are slightly slightly different matters, but most of it is the result of our not having not having paid sufficient care to the consequences of our various technologies. Another overriding feature of the 22nd century world of uh, agency and the peripheral is kleptocracy. Yes. Which you could say is the result of us not paying enough attention to democracy. Um, In the world of agency, democracy in Britain has collapsed. 
as it has everywhere else in the world, and been replaced with a very Putin-esque form of government run by gangster oligarchs through the city of London. Uh, this new form of government is called the klept. So I, wouldn't want, I want to know what the weirdest facts or rumours were that you discovered in your research around kleptocracy and oligarchy. Well, uh, as I said earlier, I, I'm not, I'm really not a researcher in, in the conventional sense. And when I was writing, when I was writing the peripheral, I had written, uh, I, you know, I had Flynn and her rural, rural, small town America. But I was assuming that the, you know, the future thread, she was sort of, you know, early, you know, near future, almost contemporary. Uh, and I was assuming that the, the further, f what was going to take the place of a, I hadn't even thought of it being a really of a, a further future thread. I thought that the bad guys would be from Miami and that the, the wealthy people of Miami in, in that day would inhabit a world of technologies that to Flynn were quite science fictional. She's heard about them. Uh, and maybe you know, seen them on on the internet, but but no one in no one in her hometown can can afford them. So the the bad guys from from Miami would represent the future in that way. And then I happened to be in I happened to be in London, and I I went to visit Nick Harkaway, and we were standing out in his Hampstead High Street back garden on a, a sunny day, and. Somehow he got to tell it, explaining to me the, how the government of the city of London works. And it's something I'd never really heard about. And really at first I thought, it's just Nick, He's, he makes things up. <laughs> He's got such an imagination. But, you know, I started asking him questions about it, and I, I realized he was, he was telling me the truth. And somehow in that moment... The government of of the city, and my what knowledge I had of of you know the lives of of expat Russian oligarchs in London, slid seamlessly together. And by the next morning, that other thread was a hundred years in the future, and the marriage of the two was what ran the city. Although the klept is a, a nickname. It's not that it's it's not the the formal title. And indeed the nature of kleptocracy is to conceal itself. So that in in uh, in that that the future London of the peripheral and agency, there's a sort of front of traditional government, but everyone knows perfectly well that it's actually run through the city of London by the oligarchs. We're recording this interview during Trump's impeachment trial. The klept was frightening in 2015. Now it seems like it's just a newspaper headline. Yeah. Is your job become more difficult during the Trump era? Is it harder to write fiction which seems distinct from the headlines? Or well, is it, in fact, easier? The fact of his election 
caused me initially to assume that that I would have to abandon the manuscript of the book that eventually became Agency, which originally had a, a, a different title and the same pro versions of the same two female protagonists that Agency has, but had been envisioned as a, a light romp through uh, the land of, of Silicon Valley billionaires. You know, I saw it as it was going to be light and parodic and and fun. I got up the morning after he'd been elected and looked at my, looked at my laptop that was gazing at me sadly from across the room. And I thought, oh dear, this is, you know, this has ruined this book. I'll, I'll never be able to complete it because it's set in a 2017 that will be the recent past by the time I can finish it and it gets published. But it's, it's written from the zeitgeist of of a world that now no longer exists. And whatever the, I knew that whatever the zeitgeist would become in the meantime was not going to be any, you know, any romp material. But after actually quite a long while, it was, you know, very depressing, it occurred to me one day to wonder if, to wonder if the 2017 of of that manuscript might not be one of the so-called stubs from the peripheral, which are induced alternate time tracks, induced from that 20, 22nd century kleptocratic London for, for various reasons. And I kind of did a few tests with that, and it seemed to, it seemed to work. So suddenly the book I was working on, which became Agency, became, in, in an unusual sense for me, uh, a, a more or less direct sequel to the peripheral, but which then proved to, to be very slow in the working out. But that was because often, you know, each day I'd wake up and the careful weighing I'd made on the previous day of just how absurdly weird the world is and how much I could afford to exaggerate that to get just the, you know, that, just the frisson I, of cognitive dissonance I want had been thrown completely out of whack because something, something had happened that was just that much weirder. It, it became very hard for me for a while to take the measurement of how real, I had to have a sense of how weird I believed the real world to be before I could do what I do. So it's certainly more difficult that way, but I, there isn't a, a single writer of speculative fiction of, of my acquaintance who, who isn't feeling that increased difficulty. We should just uh, spoil the novel for listeners by explaining that the 2017 of The Stub contains uh, Hillary Clinton in the White House. That is the less weird world um, of the novel. But no one in that 
world believes that Trump could ever have won the presidency no, or is remotely worried about it. The real world is far weirder than the 2017 world. Yes, and neither and people don't even remember the Brexit referendum because if, if it had, if, you know, if you'd voted no, it would just be completely be completely forgotten. No one would be thinking of it. What can we expect from the third Klept novel? Well, the the way the previous two books are, are constructed, we still really don't know much at all about the history of the worst and most active part of the, the jackpot during which uh, 80% of the world's human population is lost. But we have characters in the book who know exactly what happened, it, but it hasn't, if they aren't viewpoint characters, it hasn't occurred to them to do more than allude to that in conversation. And if they're viewpoint characters from that future, they haven't happened to think about it. So the reader's not had access to that. So I, I think there will be more of that story, which I'm actually not looking forward to, to having to think about very much, but I imagine, I imagine I will. And I also want to find some sort of actually positive closure for that, you know, the, the narrative arc of that world. Like, I, you, know, I want to, you know, I want to see something done about the clipped. So you are an optimist after all, mm. or at least you believe in a happy ending well, in your I'm a, fiction. I, I wouldn't say I'm an optimist, but I'm a wishful thinker at least. To end, can you tell us one thing you're looking forward to in the future? Oh, my own bed after two and a half weeks of, of touring. William Gibson, thank you very much. Thank you. This week's episode of the How To Academy podcast starred William Gibson. It was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. William Gibson's new novel, Agency, is out now. It's the sequel to his equally excellent 2015 novel, The Peripheral. If you enjoyed this week's show, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're hankering for more big ideas in this strange and stressful time, head over to howtoacademy.com where you'll find more interviews with writers and artists, leaders and thinkers including Melinda Gates, Cass Sunstein, Hilary Cottam, Ai Weiwei, and many more. We'll be back next Monday. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>